We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Architects love to share the work they're doing, whether it's at a live event, in written articles or even on a podcast. Most architects want to spread the word about the innovations they've been able to achieve in their buildings. But there are people other than architects who are so passionate about architecture that even though they might have never worked in the profession, they've dedicated most of their time advocating for the work architects do. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be speaking with some allies of built environment professionals about public engagement and how they're bringing the great work architects do to people in the community. Our guest in this episode is one of Australian architects' greatest champions, modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. In 2019, Tim was awarded the Australian Institute of Architects National President's Prize, where the jury statement said, quote, Tim is one of our industry's most passionate activists and champions. Not only has he raised the profile of heritage and design in general, he also promotes Australian architecture in his unique voice in popular culture." End quote. In this interview, Tim shares why he started his performance tour, Man About House, staged in significant residential architecture, how Tim uses his unique experience and narratives to connect almost anyone to the Australian built environment, and how buildings say something important about the time in which they were built in. I'm joined in this interview by Sally Sue, who is an Imagine representative based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim, for the Hearing Architecture Podcast. It's really fantastic to have you. How are you going? Is this where I say hello? How are this you? Is, yeah, you have to say hello here and let everyone <laughs> yeah, good know. To, good, you know? good to be <laughs> with you, with Sally, <laughs> Daniel. This is great. Check one, two. Lovely to have you on that show. <laughs> well, Tim, it's so great to have you on board on this episode where we're talking about... I've been waiting for quite some time. <laughs> I was like, seriously, you know, I've seen it around. I was like, when are they going to ask? What do I have to I, do? I swear the invite was in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> we got to you now. Yeah. So it's great to have you on board for this episode where we're talking about public engagement because you're definitely one of the most successful people in the public who is talking about architecture. The only one? Is it, am I the only one? <laughs> the most well-known one to us. Yeah, apart from you guys. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The one that we prefer. I'd love to know about the Man About House series. Now, you've got a background in comedy and performance. What led you to start Man About House and doing a performance that has an architecture bent to it? I really started maybe, I don't know, early 2000s, I really started going to a lot of open houses, particularly here in Sydney, but the Sydney Living Museums or there was the Historic Houses Trust was suddenly having these open days and you could go and see Harry Seidler's house or uh, Bruce Rickard house and, you know, and I went off by myself, didn't really know anyone else that mm. was into architecture and I didn't really think about asking any of my friends I was happy to go and I quite liked it. And I, I really liked that experience and it always stuck with me. And I, I love the excitement of going into these houses and going to um, Harry's and Penelope's house in Kalara while Harry was still alive and 
at that stage I was doing breakfast radio and I'd sort of been, you know, around that time I'd been interviewing people like Sylvester Stallone or you name it. I'd met some pretty famous people but I was probably more nervous being around Harry as a bit of an architecture nerd. And I, I, the house was extraordinary. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I still vividly remember him sitting on the back steps just sort of talking away. I, the two things I remember, the, how beautiful Penelope was, how stylish and how well-spoken she was and the way that she sort of floated around this perfect home. And then Harry on the, on the sort of concrete, brutalist back steps at the back in a really high pair of Hugo Boss jeans whinging about local councils. It was really, it was really something special to it. So those, those experiences uh, were really important to me in terms of sort of crystallising what had been, you know, been bubbling away was there was something about, I suppose, modernist architecture that had appealed to me. I always collected furniture from the times and, and then it just sort of spiralled out of control. So it was, it was born by that, and then I thought, well, imagine if I could be in those places that I loved, or going to Rose Sadler House and, or Wall Street by Robin Boyd. And imagine if I could put on a show where I could be in the house and I could hang out for longer, and people could have a drink, and we could roll around in the in that feeling, beverages mm-hmm. and entertainment. And the early shows were weren't particularly well evolved, and they were very stand up comedy based. They weren't there wasn't much in terms of discussion about the home. There was a little bit, but I didn't really. I just sort of thought the, that experience is is enough to do that. At that stage, it was just pretty much straight stand-up c- comedy. There wasn't much discussion about architecture. It was just about being in the space. And that idea stays with the show. Sometimes there's a little bit of chitter-chatter about the homes, but it, it tends to be let the architecture do do the heavy lifting in terms of being in the space. You can read about the house or you can enjoy the space or you can talk to the architect if they're there or the, the homeowners. Um, especially the new houses, you know, there's not much more to discuss. Sometimes with the older houses, there's there's a bit more into the history and, and why the house is important to unpack. But quite often the shows are quite standalone in that way. So, yeah, it, it started quite small and I, I did a few and they sort of worked, went pretty well. And we went to Tasmania and did an Esmond Dorney house and that sort of worked. And it wasn't until we really got to Melbourne, to Wall Street, the Robin Boyd house, and we had a bit more time in that house that, it started to you know, find its feet and, you know, we popped off to Auckland and did a funny little modernist house over there and that was it. And then it's I've been on it ever since and it's been a great project and it tends to be the one constant thing that I've been doing for the last nine years. Mm. Did you find that there were in the early days a lot of architects who were coming to these performances or was it a real mix of, of architects and, and the public? So when we started the first lot, it was very much, I suppose, people who liked historic housing trust buildings, you know, they were just quite old, to be honest, a bit confused by the whole situation. Some of my friends and some sort of comedy fans and people had liked what I had been doing before that. But the big change in terms of the audience came once again when we went to Wall Street and it was the ideas picked up by the design files. And so then when the interior designers, the architects started coming, the mid-century modern enthusiasts and to architecture enthusiasts. And for a long period of time, you know, you could come along to a show and it was it was pretty full <laughs> of architects. And, you know, then I did the TV show and it broadened out again. So we, we do get a a mixture so there's always there's always some design professionals I think in the audience but certainly we're not as reliant on them as perhaps mm. we were you know in the early days so I did a one of the first new houses we did was a Claire Cousins house and I think mm. that would probably 
most of the audience was sort of architects, a few artists and a few interior designers, but yeah, mostly um, professionals who want to come and have a peek at the house and and maybe they maybe they wanted to network too. There was a bit of that going on back in the day, and Instagram really was able to drive the show and the success of the show. It became a bit of a thing for a while, and it was really exciting because I because of the way the shows work. You know, there's plenty of time to chat and meet the audience because it's pretty small, pretty mm. intimate. So in in another way, I got to meet a bunch of architects that I either knew and admired, or people that I was going to know and and then admire, which has been a really um, fulfilling part of my life to be honest mm. and, and do you think that that's part of the success of of your involvement in architecture now has been that you've made these really amazing connections between what you experienced in these houses where when you were growing up and then using these modernist houses as a backdrop where you can connect people's experiences to the houses as opposed to trying to talk about the details of the houses which may be what architects do when they have to present their work yeah i mean i I'd, I'd probably like to talk about them more if i was a bit more knowledgeable and that's where my experience goes and obviously i learned a little bit more and i read a lot more over the years and certainly a bit more confident um having conversations you know i was just having a pretty robust and fabulously interesting conversation with a academic about a project and i probably wouldn't have been able to feel that I'm confident enough to have that chat a few years ago, but now you know, with my, I still have the same degree of stupid blind faith and in, in, in living life to its best and throwing yourself into projects. But I think you know, I've been blessed by you know the houses do talk for themselves in so many ways, and sometimes it's okay just to describe the feeling of a building and it's like this is a cool house, and you don't have to get much deeper than that because you you sort of know. And I think that's how I was talking to someone the other day about choosing schools mm. and how, you know, they go to a school with their kids and you walk around and you sort of go and you just sort of know. And sometimes it can be as simple as that. You know, I remember thinking, mm. trying to explain why I loved living in Sydney as a Melbourneian and what it was. And and somehow you sometimes you couldn't describe it just being you know, it's just it's just sort of Aussie and in a in a really old traditional sense. Not the, but it just seems so. You know, when I was a kid, at Sydney loomed large. And a, you know, you grow up under the shadow of the Opera House mm. on TV. It's this shiny emerald city that so many people have written about. And you know, Robin Boyd. You know, I can't remember exactly. I'm paraphrasing it, but he he basically said it in those really simple terms: is that Sydney's just so bloody Australian. You know, it's just it's Aussie. <laughs> And so the simplicity of language sometimes, I think sometimes it's a feeling, yeah. it's a vibe, it's Marbo, you know, that caper. Yeah, and that's what we love about you, I think, because we talk about how accessible your shows are and how you bridge that gap between how architects present buildings. And I think uh, earlier on I was really, really intrigued by um, your Instagram and social media and how wide range these architecture that you present are. Some of them are so humble. They're just simply, you know, houses for sale. And I think it's so accessible as you start to introduce it to a wider audience, we can to show up to an open house and also experience it without having to book a tour. And as you bridge, Sydney has all these iconic architecture, all these well, you know, reputed um, designer homes, but there's also these little gems that are hidden in the suburbs. And I think through your lens, we've been able to uncover them. I love how people get excited about things and the, there's this sort of potluck element to what you put on Instagram and what resonates with people and what doesn't. And sometimes it's some house is going to be 
super popular and people are going to like it and then others and then others you think, oh, it's a bit ho-hum and for whatever reason people know, I can never guess it. But I think people are curious beasts, aren't they? They like to see people's homes and they're interested in stories and they, they like to dream big or dream small. I always think that it's interesting that houses that we've, we've done a lot of shows and some great houses, but it's always been the, the smaller homes that people have been most comfortable in. It's really telling. And we've always had our best shows in the smallest homes as well, the most considered of them because people feel the most comfortable in that environment. It doesn't mean they haven't, you know, they may not end up with as many photos on Instagram, but yeah, I think it's something to do with the, the way that large and you know, expensive architecture can sometimes make you feel. You can be really in love with it. It can look beautiful, but do you always feel like it's for you? Maybe not. I thought that was a fantastic example of seeing a house like that with the Dorney house in Hobart where a lot of architects, you know, quite senior and successful architects sometimes in Melbourne when I mention the Dorney house, they don't know about it. But in Hobart, pretty much everyone knows about this almost fibro shack with the with the weird round floor plan up on the hill. And that's not a huge building and it's quite small, but the features in it definitely do speak to, you know, bringing people together and making people feel comfortable. But it seems like when we talk about or try to give evidence that because of the design that those things happened in architects or the presentations that I've been to, not many architects want to talk about those emotional things or the the things that are filled with love. Have you ever noticed that in some of the presentations you've seen architects give where it's a little bit more technical, they start to use archi-speak? Yeah, and I think that's fine. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you go to any industry function and I go to lots of industry functions because I do lots of work, you know, I'm seeing things for people. And the industry people always talk about industry things. So it's not unusual and it's not limited to your profession. Hmm. And, you know, and I think within, you know, so for instance, if you were going to ask me to go and sit through one of your conferences, I would delightfully say, um, I'm good, thank you very much, because it's not for me. Um, right. And that's totally fine and nor should it be. So it's it's an industry event and I'm not an architect, clearly. So and I think that's okay. I think it's... Yeah, there's an obsession with sort of asking me, you know, about communicating with the general public. But I sort of think that nine times out of ten, the buildings really do all the heavy lifting and the hard work. They can speak for themselves in lots of ways. You know, the best architects don't talk about architecture. They talk about humanity. Mm. And so what I find sometimes is that the less connected people are and the, and the ones who do that are really successful residential architects. Mm-hmm. because they're there and talking about people's homes and lives. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and this is my really, you know, limited view on these things and my, is that, you know, as the buildings get bigger and people get, not that it's not important, but it's so much more technical, isn't it? It's about engineering. You talk about big buildings and, and the conversations become about regulations and, Blah, blah, mm. blah, 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 oh, yawn, 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 I'm bored already thinking about it. But that's <laughs> – so it's, it becomes a much more technical thing, doesn't it? You know, maybe I'm wrong mm. on that. So um, the, the, it steps further away from the basis of dealing with people mm. on a one-on-one basis. And I think the thing that I've learned from dealing uh, with architects on a couple of projects I've done is that what you realise suddenly – 
that I never realised before mm-hmm. and doesn't get spoken about a lot is that if you're lucky enough to have that opportunity, the experience of someone being interested in how you live is a really beautiful one and one mm-hmm. that is underrated and and it's hard to put the value on that. And we're all the same and even me, you, you sit there with your architect and or anything to do with building, everything's so clouded by cost and so it should be because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So because it's such a heavy cloud, you don't allow yourself to enjoy the experience. And so maybe that experience, because, you know, as an architect, you're selling something, the value of something that you that's down the track, aren't you? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> like, how do you do How do you sell that? One day this is going to be amazing. I think you should do this because. But mm-hmm. if you put it down to its basis, it's like someone sitting down and saying, you know, how do you want to live? How do you want to live in the future? How do you cook? Is this what we want to do? What do you need? And then you may be not thinking that you know what you want, and that's okay too. I mean, that's that's a real treat in life. That's where I think the magic of of architecture is, and when it comes to homes. Yeah, and I think that's homes are so relatable. We know we've we've in Australia, pretty much everyone lives in a in a standalone house. More and more people are living in apartments, but when you do scale up to this, you know, public buildings or large government buildings, the, the relatability of those scales and, and the ways that they function might not be as easy to understand, you know, when architects might be might be talking about what they tried to do with those buildings, even if they are able to talk about them without talking about the regulations. So I guess that's that's one of the big differences as well in architecture is that, you know, we do big stuff and houses are quite big, but then when you get to public buildings, that they can feel a little bit impersonal. And they're harder to relate to. Yeah, and I think you know when people ask me about, you know, do you like this office building? And you sort of go, <laughs> go, yeah, I sort of like it. But you know, it's hard to really love those places because a lot of the time, being in them, being and the type of jobs that sometimes you have to do, mm. it's, you know, I, I I never really liked the offices I worked in. Mm. You know, I remember when I was doing radio and I was doing. This particular person who'd make us have meetings in his office that had, didn't have a window. Mm. And then it was like, you must stay in this room without a window <laughs> until you've come up with enough ideas for tomorrow's show. And like, how, what mental case <laughs> suddenly decides that that is the way that human beings can create? And mm. I was at a specialist the other day and getting some tests that I think you have to do when you get to a certain age. And I was talking to the cardiologist about how there's these people that work. She got these technicians. Mm-hmm. And they work in a same thing where they're in a little room without a window all day, fluoro lights. And then, wow. you know, they go downstairs and get a cup of tea and sit inside under fluoro lights. You know, there's, there's not even a tree anywhere. And I said, yeah. what's going on here? What, what, these guys need a window. And she just sort of laughed it off. It's like. You're in the business of health. <laughs> That's worse than the 1920s. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Even then they were started to think about those sorts of things. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it, how? Yeah. yeah. And so I suppose the ability to fall in love with a commercial space won't be limited, mm-hmm. you know, and I think you can you really see there's, a, there's something that's sort of soul-destroying about so many of them. You sort of go, oh. Absolutely. I always think, you know, once you've got a swipe card in your life, part of you dies. <laughs> I think you might be right. And this might be even why we put so much effort into 
you know, a typology like Australian public toilets because, you know, if you've been busting and then you go somewhere where it hasn't been done well and it's not taken care of and it's a really cold, isolated place, and you you know, you remember that. Well, I think <laughs> you, and you do see, and there's plenty of them, and I remember being in the, in the Botanic Gardens in Sydney and I just stopped to take a photo of a sort of Sydney school dunny and mm. and I said, oh, you know, I'm going to pop this on Instagram, see whether it gets some love and, you know, mm. it blew up like mad. <laughs> My wife's grumbling. I can't believe you're getting a 1,000 likes for a toilet. Um, <laughs> but it shows the importance, isn't it? And so many of them are and, I, you know, invariably there's always some public toilet that you sort of can't help but admire in some way or shape and form and you know that someone good did them and they're important things to be better, aren't they? I love them when they win awards or people put them up and go, oh, this is – because if you're going in there and there's something magical about them in some way, Mm. they can sure as hell can give you a lot of joy when you're doing something that just relieving yourself, really. Exactly. If you're feeling a bit vulnerable, it's uh, it's a really nice thing if you can yeah. feel like you're in a sanctuary yeah. and feel like you're uh, yeah you can relieve yourself in peace. And it's, look, it's a hard one to get the general public fired up about, <laughs> you know. But if they were all terrible, they'd know about it, you know. If they were all just sort of best of brick and didn't have any moments of joy, it would be worse for it. Absolutely. And and in your experience of finding, you know, um, modernist homes or even toilet blocks where they might not have been widely published and the architects weren't weren't that well known, have you ever had any response from from people where you've posted about their work and you know, yeah, they didn't have much marketing out there, or they might have drifted into you know retirement years or, or a little bit of obscurity in, in the architecture world? I always think when you see some building, I always I always think, oh, someone's I bet someone good did that. I bet someone good did that building. And there's a toilet block at Brunswick Heads that I've always admired on the New South Wales north coast. And then I, a, a friend of mine introduced me to this Byron Bay architect, um, Christine Badas. I think that's how you pronounce her, back, her last name. And she did Badara Island. She did all these amazing houses in, in Byron. And we started chatting later on about some of the toilet blocks she did and she mentioned that one. I said, oh, I've always loved that one. And she was so, so chuffed because it's one of her favourite pieces of work. And I suppose if you do do a good toilet block and someone appreciates it, I know that I would be rather chuffed that the idea and the thoughtfulness that goes into it is, is acknowledged. Absolutely. Especially if you're there when you, you know, it's after a day at the beach and you go, like I do, I've got little kids and you're trying to get them showered out the front or you're taking them in there to do a wee or whatever. And, <laughs> or they just do that wonderful thing that kids do that, decide that they want to talk to you for half an hour while they're having a crap (laughs) (laughs) and it's 40 degrees and you're stuck in a public amenity, of course you're going to have a look around looking for little elements of design to make you feel better about your life. I think that's very timely for us to roll through where I think uh, we particularly love the way you communicate design and architecture and I think we talked about it where you were very humble to describe where you don't have technical knowledge to it but you come from a social aspect and I think through that it gives a different lens and perspective on how we use space and how we can then make that quite more accessible and I think if you could share with us on why that is important to tell stories because I think some people might show up to one of your shows and expect more design only because of their background and might be delightfully surprised by how you then frame all of the stories and share their tales to be able to allow us to see a different side on how architecture can allow us to see more than just built elements. Yeah, I think um, 
you know, I love I love history, I love social history, and obviously as a comedian, and you know, and previously, you know, being a broadcaster, and I love telling stories, and I love writing stories, and I've just seen them as the best way to be able to connect my ideas, to engage people through a whole bunch of things that I think are really important, and invariably, if you start talking about, so here's a great example, you know. I did a podcast for the Sydney Opera House about tapestries. Now, if there was anything that people were going to get bored, if you go, I'm not going to listen to a story about podcasts. I mean, a story about, sorry, if you're going to listen to a podcast about tapestries, you've got about two people in the world who might get up excited about that. But then you start layering all the levels of different stories amongst it and it's about how you frame it. And I won't go into it why they're interesting now, but that just brings people in and so... I sort of thought, oh, how do we sort of, what am I, the basis of what I'm really passionate about is that our ability to design things really well because I've always been interested in how well we can design things. I've been inspired our great designs, whether it's graphic design, whether it's industrial design, whether it's architecture, whether it's art or even whether it's music. It doesn't really matter. Um, literature, all these things, you know, they're all, they're all intertwined as far as I'm concerned and the things that I love, you know, broadly. So, you know, I've been there when I start talking about architecture to people at barbecues, you know, their eyes glaze over <laughs> about certain things unless it's about property. So if you can connect stories with people, with particularly if you're talking about why heritage is, is important, growing up in some sort of home and saying goodbye to the family home is and, and what you do afterwards and what you do with those things that your parents and grandparents after they die is one that's incredibly universal and so with the designing a legacy project that was about saying here's a great architect designed a great house here's a situation that most people go through what is it about great architecture that makes it harder to say goodbye to your family home and then it's a collection of great stories around great houses and so that's means if you don't really like that house you can relate to someone talking about their mother or father and because it's it's just simply relatable and it's a good tale and i'm more and i'm better at telling the stories or helping people tell the stories than i am to talk about the ins and outs of how you build something or as i said many times not my expertise so that's what i think what i've got to offer and so in a really broad sense like a national broadcaster we're trying to sell architecture to a television station that's not about renovating is is really tricky. So it is really it really is a sweetener and and it works really well. And and with the one before with Streets of Your Town, it was really it was a really great way to let people let people know a bit more about why our suburbs look the way they do. Then they'll start to recognise and respect the architecture a little bit more. You've got to put them in place. You've got to put them in a sense of history. You've got to explain to people why they are important. And so if you're talking about standing up for heritage, when we say the Sirius building in Sydney, the Brutalist building that I joined, the Save Our Sirius project movement, what I always thought was really important was to connect that building with people's memories. So we connected the idea of people going over the bridge with their mum and dad when they were kids and seeing it for the first time. So 
that became a buy-in. So you place it within their life and their time. Um, and then people have feel like they have a connection to it. Um, an interesting thing about modernism is that because it's an international language, the nostalgia people have for modernist houses is the same everywhere or modernist buildings. And that's how you, you know, when we do shows overseas, when I talk about seeing a house around the corner or a building that was far more interesting than the house I grew up in or that inspired me. You know, you're a kid in London, you know, there's some building, it's it's exactly the same and that's there's, there's something really wonderful about that. Mm. I think that's a huge part of what makes your, your program so successful, whether it's been your experience in radio leading into doing things on TV but your ability to play with different mediums seems to really play to your advantage. Um, and it was great in designing a legacy where you showed some clips of Robin Boyd on his TV show and a few journalists doing stories on, on architecture and seeing yeah, the journalists doing these stories on, on housing in Australia. What do you think is, is the opportunity there around using different medias to tell mediums to tell these stories and to connect people with with architecture and to either visualise things if they're going to be on TV because there was a really lovely use of, you know, animation and 3D graphics on your on Designing a Legacy where you could show, you know, little houses coming together mm-hmm. or little sections to show how things worked. Yeah, what do you think of the opportunities there to, to help to share some of these stories so that um, yeah, we can inform the public? I mean, I think the mi- at the moment it's about nothing's more top of mind really than affordability. Mm. Different, different housing models. And I think the role of architecture at the moment is to bring those to the forefront, mm. to talk about how design can make you have a more affordable life if possible. I know there's different elements to it, but the idea that designing a home that can adapt for the future, mm. that can, you know, the multi-generational thing and sort of advocating for better apartments. Mm. And not just, I mean, always the apartments are going to be pretty similar in lots of ways, but aren't they better in terms of what they provide for families, not just young people? I think that would be really good. But I think TV's really really tricky in terms of, especially the commercial networks, that they will always want to, you know, the best house, (laughs) the glitziest house, you know, look inside this house, you know, this is, um, and I think that's why people like, grand designs because I like the fact that you can see something go from go to woe. Mm. But there's also something refreshing that <laughs> things do go wrong because mm. we know that happens, um, that people get pushed to the limits with, with their finances mm. um, in order to make their dream come true. So I think the it's trying to strike the balance between entertainment and information and entertainment always wins. So mm. it's it is a tricky medium for communicating ideas unless it's in some sort of sort of documentary form. And then often, you know, documentaries don't always get as large an audience as some of those other shows. Whereas mm. I suppose those renovation shows, whether or not they're um something like uh Restoration Australia is pretty good at reminding people that homes from all different moments in time from different eras are worth protecting and I think they've done a really good job with, you know, having a lot of modernist homes on that series mm. uh, and, you know, that's got, that show has does have a huge audience so I think that's been really successful. 
As you talk about um, the mixed media and the mediums uh, that you work with and the platforms, I think what we're very interesting, interested uh, as architects and designers is how you present and how we can better present our work and design and architecture in general. Because I think you're starting from sharing stories about people and that's absolutely universal. It's something that we're very familiar with. But more often than not, architects start from the built and the the hard building materials instead and it'd be very good to hear you share a few perspectives of how you see designers and how designers can maybe broaden their reach by presenting differently. I think simple is good. I remember the late Chris Wilkinson talking to me about how he he designed Barangaroo based on a four-leaf clover, you know, something I'll remember forever. And I mean, he was a beautiful artist, Chris, and I think that gets missed in the story of that building, you know, these sketchbooks are, the, are extraordinary, you know, and it, and the story is really about him, you know, technology enabling him to create a sketch and, and bring it to life. We all, no matter what it is, we like things distilled down to a sort of simple idea that can be sold quite easily. So, and I think you guys do it pretty well, you know, the inspiration for a building and we saw this, we saw that, it's just stripping back some of the, the layers of, of how you describe things. But it's hard because you, I, from what I can ascertain, and I could be wrong with this, is that all those extra layers are demanded of you in the way that you study and then you've got to unlearn it. Would I be correct there in some way? <laughs> You'd be right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so complex yeah. out of reach. That's the problem. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's a, to justify ideas. and The same, same thing happens with the way that I put together a, a television show. For the ABC is that you essentially you put all these layers and ideas and thesis together and then you actually just pull it all back to create a story that's really about pictures and a few ideas. And so I was explaining to someone today about we were talking about a million different things about this particular architect and modernism and and I said, well, but when it gets on screen, it will be most people aren't even listening because the house is amazing. <laughs> and it's like I do it every every time I have a, a meeting with the ABC and I say to whoever I'm with, I'm saying, we will have all this. Once they get the pictures come out, they're not even listening because they go, oh, look at that house. That looks amazing. I can live there. That would be beautiful. Really, and then I suppose it goes back to that same idea as if you – um dazzle everyone with images and you know that's the sales part of it isn't it but then you say oh but i want to i want to add more meaning to this mm. and sometimes maybe maybe there isn't any meaning you're making up the meaning <laughs> and that's the same with art really you know they tell artists that you need you draw a picture you know and then paint a painting and then you need to to justify its reasoning for mm. actors so they've got some bullshit to wank on about when they're <laughs> around for a dinner party it's a nice picture sometimes. Yes, there's always you can have some more depth, but yeah, sometimes we're just inventing it. And I think that's it's interesting the idea behind you know making sure that a project has meaning. And I thought that was that was fascinating got to think about the Ken Woolley House in designing a legacy that was donated to UNSW, but then also the serious apartments where sort of over time their significance and the meaning behind them did get did go missing. Yeah, how do you feel about those types of projects where where an enthusiast like yourself ends up walking through them and just, you know, saying that they're not in the best state, but you can see that inherent beauty? How do you think we can communicate to the public that some some of these buildings, which are quite spectacular, need to be preserved? Um, so 
they they're documented is really important now. Mm. And I was just looking at a Robin Boyd house for Manning Clark, the late historian. It's a 1952 house in Canberra. It's been a sort of centre of ideas, stroke home museum, house museum, even though they don't call that for quite some time. Mm. And it's there's not any great photos of it. And it's an okay house in lots of ways. It's sort of it's important in lots of ways. But you know, I, I looked at it and went, oh, I don't know what it is with this house. It's really interesting, but it's just a in many ways it's just a funny old. It's a 1952 house, but it's sort of a 1940s house. It's a sort of mm. way those things are. I, I, and I don't know because it's not as glossy as something like Rose Seidler House, which speaks something completely different. Mm. It doesn't have the same sense of optimism of the future. You know, you go into the Rose Seidler house and suddenly, or Robin Boyd's Wall Street house, and you get a sense of a really different way of living and it seems in, still seems incredibly modern today mm. in lots of ways. It's thought-provoking. Thought mm, mm. But, yeah, I mean, how we keep them and how we describe, and I'm not sure that the profession's always invested in heritage because you can't make any money out of heritage. You can only protect your own, you know, your own legacy. And even then, people, some people don't care. So it's very different, isn't it? You know, like you want to make a dollar, you want to build new things, mm. design new things. I think I do like how people who come along and say and help even the crappiest buildings bring them to life, turn them in, mm. reinvigorate them. Mm. That's a real strength, the profession, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The environmental point of view. You know, being able to drill down and find the beauty and an ugly duckling. And I think, mm. you know, I think the general public love that stuff. You know, whenever you go, oh, some crappy old nondescript, 70s brick veneer house reimagined by such and such architects. Mm. That's a great story because it makes people go, oh, I can do that. I don't have to bowl over this this home. Mm. It's got something going on. It's going to be better for the environment. Hopefully it might be cheaper or it might keep the, the character of the neighbourhood a bit better mm. rather than destroying what's there. So I don't think I've got any answers for, for you to be, to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> Sally's actually going through some interesting heritage stuff right now. So I don't know if you had any other follow-up questions there, Sally. Oh, I think the, the response that the audience might want to, not want to hear is that most often they're not. It's actually really hard to retain heritage buildings. And uh, in the spirit of absolutely being climate conscious, environmentally conscious, it definitely is a good move and I've been part of many. But in the end... Um, Structural integrity gets in the way, project budgets blow out. And I think sometimes the, the value outweighs the cost, absolutely. And it's about probably that sense of appreciation. There are many, many successful examples. I'm in Surrey Hills and Griffith Tees around the corner is a good example of how that can work. And Ace Hotel that recently opened is definitely one yeah. as well. So, so yeah, mixed bag of results, but definitely one not to give up on. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you can't win them all. If, if only we could. Mm. And I think that's, I mean, it's an interesting period in, in architectural history with modernism where there was some buildings that were sort of following the American influence with quite organic shapes and forms and then some other people following the more technical side of, of modernism and, and creating some really interesting geometric shapes. When it comes to, you know, the preservation of, of some of these beautiful modernist buildings, what do you think it is that really makes them feel that special to that you've dedicated a huge portion of your career now to it <laughs> after, after being in broadcasting and being so successful in that area to dedicate all this time to, to modernism? I think really, I mean, I, I was in this house on Canberra on the weekend, Patterson House by Enrico Taglietti. can't remember what year it was, but it's like 
nestled in the bush in the suburbs of Canberra and it was just one of those houses that knocks your socks off. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just such a pull on your heartstrings, I think. And the the experience of being in there is hard to describe, you know, and it's like a great song or a great book or, you know, a great movie, you know, really it can inspire you. And I think that it hasn't changed for me. It's like going to the Sydney Opera House, you know, it never gets tired, it never gets old, it doesn't stop your heart missing a beat, you know. There's just a, there's a romance to those wonderful homes. There's a romance to all great architecture mm. from whatever era it is. And that's that's what keeps me loving what I do. And then, of course, then the people that go with it, you know. When you meet other people that are passionate about what you do or, or, or design great things, you know, I find that really fulfilling. So I think the people and the connections that I make doing what I do is probably what drives it along as well. And finding those those people that love what you love or, or do the things that you love is, is a huge part of, of what I love. I think that's really good to hear you say it because I think for a while, because let's say fast fashion, everything was so fast paced, everything new is better at times, not necessarily as we would here agree. There's a time element to it, that very rapid pace of just general life and, you know, and social media taking it to the extreme. There's something really beautiful about the way you describe it because it's much more slow brew. We're talking, you know, in through your work, you retrieve archival footages, you, you show us unpublished photography, you have conversations that we would normally not have and I think that's very admirable to see you do that because I think that's a play on how we normally go about in our possibly commercial world and how buildings are put together sometimes we complain it's way too fast what clients expect from us and and I think it's really good for you to advocate that and I think I wish more people did it (laughs) so that we could all reset you know the way we go about putting things together because I think those buildings that you talk about and reference come from a different place and time and there were definitely you know almost almost like timekeepers of, you know, that era. And I think maybe we've gone through that extreme and hopefully we wind that back to allow for us to create all of those beautiful works again for our generation instead and wondering how you see that happening because your audience will broaden and it will shape as we go through the years. I think it's important to think about some of the best of the buildings are sort of I always talk about them sort of rattling ahead of us, moving ahead and sort of we're trying to catch up with the best of them. And, and their promise. What I'm interested in is also what they tell us about our nation. And sometimes they're really important in terms of reminding us of us being a better nation, a more progressive nation. So if our best architecture is rattling ahead of us, it's there to remind us that we can do better, you know, because that's really what it is. You hear a building that challenges people is about a progressive ideas. And so a great school, a great surf club, what does that say? You know, you know, I talk about what a building's saying to us, you know, what's it talking to us about? So when I see those, you know, say, like, let's just use the example of a surf lifesaving club and there's a few great ones around the place. You know, what does that say that says, says to us about who are they for? Do you feel welcomed by that building? Is it giving you a cuddle? What does it do for little kids walking past? What does it mean in 10 years' time? And that we commit money, resources and thought to public buildings that reflect, you know, our love of the outdoors. We're so lucky to have beautiful beaches in this country that we can remain fit and connected to the ocean, to the planet, and then they become the, the new churches, the neighbourhood connection places. So they are really important to us and so the same as a great school that's well-designed or the church and then, you know, something is 
impressive as the opera house, which just continually just gives back to us, but also taps us on the shoulder and reminds us to be better, to keep striving to be a more thoughtful and progressive nation, to remember how important the arts is in our lives and how important the arts is in, in nation building. And, you know, I work in the arts, so it's important to me. I, you know, I have a vested interest in that. But I do believe that, you know, out of that environment are the songs we sing at weddings, it becomes the books we read and love, the radio shows and the podcasts we love, but arouse that tell our stories. And, you know, we need wonderful homes for that. And one of the things I like about being able to perform anywhere in a beautiful little Bichino Surf Lifesaving Club in Tasmania that, that uh, Jack Beryl did and, you know, they were going to build something crappy and he said, oh, well, I can do that, you know, I don't build something crappy for the same money, I'll, if not cheaper, I'll design you something that's beautiful and I won all those awards and, and because of that we went to Bichino and we performed there and I'm going to put it in my next TV show for that reason because it just, it's an example of, how architecture can bring people together, can lift our spirits. And, you know, not every building has to do that. There's always going to be a block of flat that flats that does nothing for anyone. That's fine too. But the best of our buildings can be in that moment, but still the story remains the same. So, And I think that's why when we lose them, the more of them we lose, the less reminders there are. And those project homes I often talk about that I love, designed by our best architects, they tell a story of the, the rise of the middle class and the lucky country, people being able to own a well-designed home, which should be should be top of mind for all of us. That should be the great issue about housing affordability is that everyone, everyone has the right to a well-designed home. Not everyone could design them in those days, but why, why it's really great to still have them and be reminded of that is the promise of this nation that we should be able to live in, in well-designed homes and you know, that's, that's my dream and it's, it's probably never going to happen but it doesn't mean we can't keep talking about it. Yeah, we can keep trying, mm. keep trying to make it happen. All right, well, thank you so much, Tim, for sharing all of your thoughts on, on what Australian architects are doing and what they've done in the past as well and what they've already achieved and how we should preserve that. I know that we're all working as hard as we can to try to keep designing amazing buildings out there that we can all be proud of and give Australians, you know, sublime experiences in our built environment. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to actually bring this work to the public. We can't wait to see your next project that you work on. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, Sally. And a very um, important thing I should add is that for design professionals, coming to one of my shows is tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best line for today. <laughs> you can't get any of those points or whatever you need. Know. <laughs> That's right, CPD points. points. Yes. <laughs> the educational value is not something we need to record. <laughs> yeah, should be able to go see, see CBD points or whatever you call them. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Oh, no, I love awesome. it. All right. Thank you so much. And, you know, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, guys. All the best. And uh, real pleasure to chat to you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thanks again to our great guest and advocate, Tim Ross. Tim also produces podcasts for our sponsor, Brickworks. So if you'd like to hear more from some amazing architects and Tim as well, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. 
If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Daniel Moore. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.